0: Amen. Please be seated. So grace is a word that is probably all too familiar to us. We name babies grace. Employees can try not to be late at work to be be in their bosses good graces. We refer to an elegant woman as full of grace or those famous figures who have fallen from grace. Well, in our case, we call our church Grace Church. What does the word grace even mean then? Does it refer to the clothing and style and may it be used for beauty and elegance? Is it to be thought highly of? To be thought well of? As to maintain one's good favor as in to live in a court of state of grace? Or is it a kind of grace as a prayer to say grace? Though the word may seem very common to us, sometimes the meaning is actually lost to many of our cultures around us. Grace is a uniquely Christian idea. So the Buddhist Eightfold Path or the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish Pharisees with their Torah and the Muslim Code of Law all offer a way of life by which we merit and by which we receive approval through our own efforts. Only Christianity is uniquely marked and defined by grace. But friends, what is it? why do we actually need it, where do we find it, and what comfort is there in it? Well, that's what I want us to be thinking this morning as we turn in our study of the New Testament book of Titus. Let me invite you to turn with me now to Titus chapter 2, and we'll be focusing on verses 11 to 14. Now for the context, as you're turning to Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 14, let me give this briefly. This is a letter written to the early Christians in the early days of Christianity, where the gospel came to the morally decadent island of Crete. This is a Mediterranean island where the gospel began to take root. But it appears the Cretan culture was influencing the church, so to speak, more than the church influencing the Cretan culture. We learn that there are all these false teachers in the church, in chapter 1, verse 16, where they say, Paul says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Those who profess to know God do lip service to God, but they deny him, Paul says, by their works. So Paul says to Titus in chapter 2 verse 6, be a model of good works. And we see that even in chapter verse 7. And he's supposed to teach Various pockets of of the people in the congregation. He is supposed to teach to the older men and younger men. Younger men and younger women. And so forth. He is to teach them what a life of good works looks like. You see that in chapter 2 verse 10. So that in everything that they may adorn the doctrine of God our savior. You see Titus' opponents have separated beliefs from behavior. They had separated doctrine from duty. They have separated faith from life. Yet Paul is helping us to know that belief and behavior in a Christian life are inseparable. You cannot draw a line between them. One pastor says, good works by us are always a product of God's work in us. Goods work by us are always a product of God's work in us. So let us look at Titus chapter two, verses one to 14, as I read this text in our context. Titus 2, chapter 2, ch- Titus chapter two, verse one. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Old men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame. Have nothing evil to say about us, having nothing, to, nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own position who are zealous for good works declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you amen let us come to our lord in prayer father we praise you for by grace we have been saved And your grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a life that is honoring in your sight. So we pray that, Lord, that we would understand this grace well. We would see what it means to live by faith, trusting in your saving grace. Help us, Father, to understand this. Give us grace to articulate this and apply it to our own lives in every area of our lives. For your glory alone we ask these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now as you see how we we, uh, we we'll just spend some time looking at this section Paul starts by saying teach what accords sound doctrine in verse 1 and then he closes by saying declare these things now the word the ESV translates as declare is the same word that opened the section earlier it's the word to teach and so in two, chapter 2 verse 1 to 15 inform the unit bookended by this idea of what is to be taught. And Titus is to teach how we are to live in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, because of how Christ Christ has lived for us, chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. So we see here the word in verse 11, 4. Verse 11 to 14, provide the grounds the reason for all the commandments that come in chapter two verses one to 10. Normally, if you're familiar with Paul's writings, he begins with the indicatives of the gospel, right? All the things that God has done in Christ and only then he does move to the imperatives of how we are to live for Christ. But notice here, Paul is flipping that order. He gives all the imperatives in verses one to 10 and then he follows up with the indicative. Because brothers and sisters, the point here is not the order. The critical thing is the relationship between the two. Does God work in us because we first worked for him? Or are our works simply the overflow of the finished work of Christ? And the relationship between God's work and between our works, friends, is what grace is all about. This section in verses 11 to 14 is all one paragraph in Greek. That is where we will spend our time today. So we we will see lots of commas, but this is all one sentence. And the grammatical subject is at the start of verse 11, where where we see the grace of God. As this whole paragraph is about grace. And what does it teach us? That it teaches us the grace that saved us, sanctifies us today, and secures us for tomorrow. The grace that saves us, sanctifies us today, and secures us for tomorrow. That is what you will notice in this summary sentence. We have the past, the present, and the future. Grace that saved, past. Grace that sanctifies, present. And grace that secures our future. Paul highlights this past, present, and end when we refers to the two appearings here. We see two kinds of appearings. So we see that in verse 12, he will turn to the godly lives that we are out to live in this present age, which he goes on to say is to be marked by good works. And then in verse 13, he lifts our eyes to the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This appearance is he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is going to happen in the future. So if you notice this small sentence or this long sentence, what you will see is that, Paul is going back and forth here. He's, going, he's looking at past, he's looking at the present, and he's also looking at the future. So what I want to do is that I want to separate this text in a thematical manner rather than uh, verse by verse. And it will, we will look at the two appearances as we walk through this text thematically. And, the, and what my hope is that by understanding that, we will understand what Christianity is. If you you are here and you are not a Christian, and if you listen carefully, this is the central summary or the core message as Christians on what we believe from beginning to our end. So if you are taking points, now notes, the first point is the grace of God comes in a person. The grace of God comes in a person. The grace of God comes for a purpose and the grace of God comes with hope. The grace of God comes in a person. The grace of God comes for a purpose. And the grace of God comes with hope. We will see that Christians live godly lives by keeping their spiritual eyes fixed on what Christ has accomplished in his first coming. And what he will accomplish in the second coming in the present age. He, is what he is, Here is what he is teaching. In the present age, we live godly lives in response to the saving grace that we received as a result of Jesus' first coming and the preparation of Jesus' second coming. So first we will see the grace of God appears in a person. Now it is critical to look at that opening phrase, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace is something that comes to us from God. If you are saved, that is because it's God's grace to you. And grace appeared visibly in Jesus Christ. So what we see here is the appearance of Jesus Christ, who was brought grace to us by Jesus coming and dying on the cross. And what he accomplished is salvation. We know that in the Gospel of John, where we see that the word became flesh and he talks about Jesus Christ, he said that he was full of what? He was full of grace and truth. Jesus is the very embodiment of grace. If you are saved, you are saved by grace and that grace appeared to you in Jesus Christ. And this grace comes in a person. And friends, this is different from the many who understand Christianity in a different way. Many would define Christianity as as what? It could be a set of rules, or as an ethical code, or some constellation of theological convictions, a kind of creedal formula. But friends, Christianity has elements of these, but if we were to understand Christianity rightly, we must understand that it is not a set of rules, not some ethical code of conduct. Christianity is about a person. It is fundamentally about the grace that has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. This means it will always be distorted unless you understand exactly who Christ is. This Jesus is the very glory of God himself. Notice how Paul speaks in Je- of Jesus in verse 13. He refers to him as our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Right here, Paul is making a profound claim that Christ is God, he is divine. Jesus is both God and savior, God in the flesh. Jesus' deity alone, it doesn't rest on this one verse but this verse does make explicit what is implicit throughout the New Testament. Even as you notice the verb describing Christ's coming in verse 11, how does it say? He appeared. It doesn't say Christ was created doesn't say that he came into existence. It says he appeared. What was previously not visible is now visible. This implies that Christ has already existed. He is the pre-existent one. He is the one who has become Emmanuel, God with us. No No other religion makes a claim like this one. It says grace comes to us in a person. So notice how right from the start, Paul grounds the godly life not in a believer's resolution, not in his will, not in his good habits, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is where we always have to start. And that is true. There is nothing in this world that prevents you from receiving the grace of God. So that's what we see. Grace came, grace comes, through the appearance of Jesus. And secondly, we will now see grace comes for the purpose, for the purpose of salvation and sanctification. This is the heart of my sermon, and we will be looking at verses 11 to 14, and I will spend more time here explaining this point. So God's grace comes for a purpose. While we were in our sinful state, God acted out of grace to send his son to save us. And he came to bring salvation, he says there in verse, to all men. For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now Paul is not saying salvation to all people everywhere. This is not not universal salvation. He is using the word all here, as we look in the context, to speak about all types of people. The types that he talked about in verses 1 to 10. In other words, the message of God's saving grace has been made available to all people, all kinds of people. This is the salvation to all men, not without exception, but with distinction. This is against the circumcision party that Paul was even warning Titus in chapter 1 verse 10. And we also see in Colossians chapter 3 verse 11, where he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, and slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The grace of God transcends all races, ethnicities, classes, situations, and ages. Men and women, young and old, even free and slaves. So the message of God's saving grace, the incarnation, the appearance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and his salvation is offered to all, regardless of age, gender or class. There is no one who is beyond the saving power of God's grace if they come to Christ. One pastor says that grace can merely disrupt any person at any moment of his life just by his appearing. And it has happened to you and me. Praise be to God. We know how evil our hearts were. We know better than anyone else. Salvation is not earned by our own effort not merited by our works. It is not earned as some brownie points, not because we live an upright and righteous life. It is a result of grace and grace alone. Now think with me for a moment. We like to think that we can earn God's favor. If we do more of this and do just a bit bit less of that, if I'm careful with my words and self-controlled, we think we can turn God's frown into smile towards us. We like to think that we can win God over or so maybe that is why we attend church each Sunday. Perhaps it is why, that is why you are at church today after not coming to church for weeks. Or you decided to stop a bad habit. I, and you're trying to work into God's good favor as we might say, and you know deep down We like the system because it gives us something to do, a sense of control of our own lives. For once, we have done our part, and now God has to do his part. And we sometimes subtly act like we deserve it. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so if you're visiting, and if you have never thought about grace in this way, if you thought about grace, or you have never paid attention to what grace means, Friends let me tell you grace is a gift. Grace is an unmerited favor. Grace is not just being treated more than we deserve. Grace is receiving the exact opposite of what we deserve. We are sinners in need of a savior. We are unholy and wicked and all our thoughts are evil. We deserve death, punishment and judgment but God in Christ appears for us so that we find grace in Jesus, the one who died on the cross for sinners, the one who died and was raised on the third day so that we receive forgiveness. We see that even in verse 14. If you look at verse 14, it says, who gave himself for us to redeem us. We like to think we can save ourselves, but we cannot do it on our own. Only through Jesus giving himself for us his substitution on our behalf, his sacrifice atones for our sins and redeems us from all lawlessness. This is grace, and this is what makes Christianity so unique. And I am presenting this grace of God in Jesus to you. If you have not received him, you can do it now. Repent of your sins and turn to Jesus in faith so that you can also receive this grace like many of us in this room, ill-deserving sinners. This is what the grace of God does to us, friends. It saves us, and it not only saves us, it transforms us. It sanctifies us. That's what we'll see in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. You see that? This training of ungodliness and worldly, uh, rejecting of worldly pa- passions and living self control life, all happens in this present age, the now. You know the word translated here, training, is elsewhere translated as discipline. Disciplining us to renounce ungodliness. So the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ is disciplining us to renounce ungodliness. And it is funny that we don't think of discipline and grace as going together very well sometimes. Discipline is a hard thing, and grace feels like a soft thing. But friends, discipline, training, and the ability to do something that you could not do before, it's a glorious gift. And therefore, it is a glorious gift of grace to you. If ever you have thought of running a marathon, Just the idea of running a marathon is not enough, right? If you have to be able to run in a marathon six months from now, it is not going to be be with you sitting on a couch today and eating pizza and coke. Because for you to be able to run a marathon takes a lot from you. Being able to run 42 kilometers is challenging. You will have to stop eating cheeseburgers and french fries and cut off on your rice and pork adobo. You will have to get off your couch, and which is remarkably comfortable. If I change the scenario even further now, it is not a fun idea. And now, think about that you are in a wheelchair and you are unable to walk. And I come up to you and say that in six months, you will be able to run a marathon. There is this surgery and this new technology that will enable you not only to walk, but also to run a marathon. This will be a very hopeful scenario for this person, won't it? And he can't do it unless of this doctor who enables him to get better. Now friends, this is how grace works. Grace is not, oh man, I got to get off my couch now. Grace is not, okay, from tomorrow I will pray more, I will read my Bible more and discipline myself more. Grace is the ability to do something that you, I could not do before, And and this is living a pure and godly life and this is because of the grace of God that has appeared to us in Jesus. The power of God enabling us to live godly lives. So how does he train us in this way, the grace of God? Well, two main things we can see in this verse are that it trains us to renounce ungodliness and positivity to live self-controlled life. We put off and we put on something. What does it mean to renounce ungodliness? We renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. Friends, it is easy to think that we've turned away from the world because we don't smoke or we don't drink or we don't cheat on our taxes or we don't curse anymore. It is easy to think that we renounce ungodliness. After all, we have chosen to come to church or we have given a right to a sister or because we are pro-life or we, we vouch for some rights as human beings. Or now we don't watch any crude movies anymore. Indeed, these are excellent and necessary things. But Paul's focus here is, here is not merely the outward sins that are easy to identify. Paul's focus is the inward sins that swirl around inside us constantly in the forms of things that we want. Things that we desire. The term worldly lust is not sexual, although it it certainly includes that. It means, more broadly, anything in the world that you desire more than trusting God's particular will for you. These are desires in all of us that long for things other than God. Here is the best gauge that I can give for you, knowing if a desire that you have is a worldly desire or a godly desire. Ask this one question. Does God want the same thing for you? God's heart desires the same things or in the same way. We often wish for peace and quiet around the house after a long day of work. But does God's heart desire the way our hearts desire it? it? I want want quiet kids and be able to check my newsfeed. God's desire is that I would glorify him in a life of self-sacrifice, which includes tolerating a house that is not quiet and trusting in God in the midst of that. So let me ask you, what desires are in your heart that would never be in the heart of God? Maybe they are sexual desires. Perhaps there are desires for more prestige or wealth than God has given you. They, are, they may be desires of greater respect, greater pleasure. Maybe your past hadn't happened in your particular way that you wanted and now you want your future to be painless and good. These desires can capture our hearts so strongly that they become our primary life motivation. What are your thoughts filled with when you wake up this morning? These things trick you, dupe you, and get us into seeking sinful ways around God. Now think of this example. How many of you here start your day, or let your whole day pass by, without even turning to God in prayer, or reading of God's word, but you're doing all necessary and moral upright things. Like you're getting ready to work. Nothing wrong, sinful. Traveling to work making a meal for the kids, if you are a student, you are studying for exams, giving a ride for a member, all valid reasons, aren't they? You are planning for a youth meeting, busy with work, but is God in that picture? And even if you can't think of any, let me assure you, it is not because they are not there. Ask God to show to you, not because I want you to be miserable, but because you are going to renounce ungodliness, you need to know what they are. So be self-reflective before the word in this regard. Know what your heart in this regard is drawn towards and you will be able to seek Christ in a greater way. This is Paul writing to the whole church. So it applies to us as well. And then the gaze also enables us to live self-controlled life. Here, we see self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-control is the ability to deny passions and lusts that un- unbelievers don't have. Uprightness is righteousness. Godliness is being like God in a way that you function in a way you want, and what you say and how you act. And all of this happens in this present age. So this is a promise, friends. We need to let it bear in our hearts. Paul wrote this to Titus, who is an island with seriously wicked people. He even quotes one of their own poets who say that they are lazy gluttons and terrible people, but the grace of God appeared. He will change those who are his. This is the grace that sanctifies us. So friends, we don't have to live defeated lives because the grace has appeared to us in Jesus Christ. The grace of God God, trains us for godliness for every age. It is true in the first century and even today in the modern day metropolitan country like UAE, the grace of God enables us to denounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So the grace helps us to deny ungodliness and to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which which war against our souls. So we are not only to say to the world, no to the world, but we are also called to say yes to Christ and walk in obedience. And now we can live that because of the grace of God, because Jesus appeared because of his first coming. There are a lot of things that we can look at that which will help us in our desire to be obedient to God by looking at the first coming of Jesus Christ. But let me give you a couple of truths about Jesus' incarnation that would help us to follow this path. One of the things things is that God sent his son to rescue us as an act of love for us. We know that in the first appearing, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, begotten son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We are saved and have entered into God's grace because he loves us. And our response to his love is to love him. We love him because he first loved us. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the love of God in how we receive the grace of God reminds us that we should obey God and renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled and upright life. Looking back on Christ's love for us instructs us in our obedience in this present age. And even Paul returns to this idea in verse 14. He says, so the grace of God, Jesus, Paul says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. So because we are redeemed from all lawlessness and positively we are now able to be zealous for good works. This means some of us need to get really serious about your relationship with God and his word. It means some of you need to persist in prayer when temptation comes your way. Be killing sin, John Owen says, or sin be killing you. We need one another individually speaking into our lives, sharing our cares and burdens, and being instructed and instructing one another. The message in our meetings need to be less of more discipline, more effort, but to bring grace into those conversations and call others one another to love Jesus better and therefore love God and now walk in obedience. God's grace in giving Jesus himself on the cross, which we see in verse 11, is to pay as penalty for our sins. This not only instructs us of the love of God that he gave his son for us, but it also instructs us about the seriousness of sin. Because grace doesn't mean God just overlooks sin, right? But grace means God dies and provides the sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. Because what God expects of us is not given grace because we have done good works, but we are given grace so that we are enabled to do good works. So we have to, we need to take sin seriously. Grace and Christ's death on the cross is not just for our salvation. It even informs our sanctification and how we take sin seriously in our lives. We do not need to be good. We become God's people, but because Jesus and his blood are washing away all our sins, that is how we are being purified and being made as his own possession. In Christ, we are purified to be his own possession. And because of that, he expects us to act like it, act like we belong, act like we are part of that family. One theologian says, genuine identity in Christ always produces conformity in Christ. That is the purpose of grace, salvation leading to sanctification. So friends, grace that comes in a person, it has a purpose in our lives. It is for our salvation and our sanctification. And thirdly, grace comes with the hope for the future. The promise that Christ made in verse 13 is to a blessed hope. And in verse 14, we see by purifying for himself a people for his own possession. And that one day our blessed hope, as we read in verse 13, will appear again in glory and return for his own. Part of receiving this promise entails he is cleansing us while we are to wait for him to come back. (coughs) We tend to think salvation is all about us, and this is what we get. But if you look here carefully, this is primarily of what God wants for us. Christ wants a people for himself. This is our future hope, my friends. The restoration of us. What we were made to be. Not just restoring us as a treasured treasured position among all the peoples. Even in Ezekiel chapter 37, we see that they will be my people and I will be their God. So we see here that Paul says, now this imagery of the Old Testament Israel is now the church. And the new Israel of God. He is making us a people. Of his own possession. The idea is that Christ's people. Are the crown jewel. Of all that he possesses. More valuable. Than anything that he has created on this earth. More valuable than the universe. He upholds us. More valuable than all the angelic hosts. That is you and me. Not because of what we have done. But because of who we are in Christ. So some of you might have to reflect on this this morning. You're feeling low and you're feeling forgotten and you're feeling hopeless and you're feeling this Christian life is it worth it? Is it all that it stacks up to be? And you need to remember this and you need to rejoice in this and you need to rest in this. This blessed hope is for sure that's going to happen to us. Now think of this imagery, you bought a brand new car and got into an accident after a year and then you get it fixed and after two years or three years another nick or a scratch or a dent and then you fix that also and then after ten years it's shaky so you overhaul the whole car, get the auto detailing done and do a whole new paint job. It almost looks like the brand new card that you bought 10 years back. But if you observe it in detail, it will never be like the one you purchased 10 years ago. But when God restores us on that final day, on, for that blessed hope, that will be glorious. We will be much more transformed, even better than how we came into this world. This is how God works in our lives. And we wait for this blessed hope, my friends. Not by twitching our hands or or like waiting at the bus stop for the next bus to hop on. But our hope for future glorification enables us to be zealous for good works today. This is God's work. We are his workmanship from beginning to the end. Not like that old car. We will be made new. This is our blessed hope because God delights in us and he is coming back for us. Just as how much he was invested in our salvation by sending his son to die on the cross. With that same zeal, he's going to return one day and take us into glory. And for this last bit, which is so easy for us to lose sight on this Christian life, And even as you partake in this communion meal in a few moments, do this in remembrance of our hope in Christ. Jesus instituted this so that we will remember his first coming and that we will be prepared for his second coming. I'm not saying this lightly, friends. That is why we partake in this Lord's Supper. Marvelous grace of a loving God. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpour, there where the blood of Lamb was lit. Friends, we do not know when Christ will appear. But just as he died and rose again, we can be confident that he will appear because of his character. Because he has been faithful to every promise that he has made. Just as Christ came in humility, we in verse 13, that he will come again in glory. He will come again in glory and we can be confident of his first coming and be assured of his second coming. We can take those promises, so to speak, and invest in them. This is not blind faith. The one who came as lamb, friends, will return as a lion. Your savior is coming for you and he has already fixed the date. Every day he draws closer, draws near. Christ is coming for you. And that is the promise of His grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, and I quote, and I'll close this with quote. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is a pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave his nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which we must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it has cost, cost God the life of His Son. Yea, we're bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear to price, too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him for us. Costly grace. Is the incarnation of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are marveled by the grace that you have shown to sinners like us. It was indeed costly for you, but you willingly paid that price. So that we sinners can be shown mercy, forgiven, and be reconciled to you, our holy God. Oh Lord, just as how we we were marveled by the saving grace of Christ. Help us, Father, to be marveled by the sanctifying grace of Christ to live a godly life even today. Bless your church, Lord to denounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Help us, Father, give us the gift to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And help us, Father, to remember that we can live like this because you have promised that we can live like this. Help us, Father, to live for your glory, and may we do that by giving honor to you and glory to you all the days of our life till the day that you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.